Hello, welcome to the Science Shambles podcast. This is Trent, one of the producers of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, you can go to patreon.com slash book shambles and pledge there for as little as $1 a month. There's lots of reward tiers to choose from as well. You get bonus things like our extended episodes of book shambles and book bags and uh, tickets to uh, our gigs, or you could be a guest on book shambles. Come into the studio with Robin Ince and Josie Long and record an episode with you as the guest. And your support enables us to keep doing what we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network, making podcasts and doing live events and uh, hosting our new blog network, which we hope you're enjoying. Uh, We're joined today on the Science Shambles podcast by some more people who have been blogging for us. Uh, This is Robin Ince chatting to Ginny Smith, who writes the An Inquiring Mind blog for us, and Marcus Chown, who's done a guest post for us recently about gravitational waves and then there's a cameo at the end from uh matt parker who was popping into the studio to record uh his audiobook so he dropped in to have a chat at the end as well new zealand i mean mm. uh, uh where you just where you've been um i, I went to uh, rotorua and they oh, used to give yeah, you like radium drinks this was the big thing you know at the, at the spa for, for decades <laughs> oh, we didn't go to a people spa. had radium drinks because they mm. thought it was really good for you this is the kind of thing you eavesdrop on when you join the Cosmic Shambles Science Blogs <laughs> podcast. Uh, welcome to uh, Ginny Smith and Marcus Chan. Marcus Chan, who is the author of one of my favourite books about physics, which is We Need to Talk About Kelvin, which is, uh, I know, a while ago, that one. But most of your books are, both of you are brilliant at taking uh, ideas which can be complex and creating Im- everyday images, which then means that, like, I mean, in the first chapter of, and I know it's an, an old, you know, universe next door was before that, and there's uh, the never any days of being dead, all of it, but they're all, there's little moments in them. Like, even at this very point now, I'm looking at the reflection of the light that happens to be in the studio on the window there and remembering about your particular description about wave particle duality and our understanding of that. And this is, so I'll, I'll start off, first of all, by. Um, where do you start, Marcus, when you're thinking, right, you you have, I would say, a, a, you know, certainly compared to the average human being, your understanding of physics, the laws of physics and the ideas around them is deep, but you have to raise them up. You have to make them, you know, hmm. shallow enough for people to be prepared to walk across them. If you see what I mean, it, yes. it, that's not a bizarre metaphor or whatever it is. But that bit of working out where to pitch it so you don't lose the science, but at the same time, you are it's inviting enough to walk further. I've got no idea. But that's exactly what I do, yeah. I mean, I can talk to, you know, Nobel Prize winning physicists because I, I do understand the physics at a reasonable level. And then I can communicate it to some unlucky person sitting next to me on a 25 bus, you know. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I learnt a lot of this stuff, um, you know, mathematically, because physics is mathematical, um, but I'm a quite a visual person. Uh, and so ever since I learnt all this stuff, um, uh, as you know, I went to Caltech and I was lucky enough to be taught by, by Richard Feynman. Um, I've been trying to really get my head around, around this. You know, I, I, I can understand the mathematics, but I'm trying to get visual pictures of, of how all this works. And you, you just pointed out the simple reflection of your face in a window pane tells you that the universe is is based on random chance. And the reason for that is because we discovered in the early part of the 20th century that that light is a stream of 
identical bullets called photons. So if you look, we're, we're actually looking at a, a, a window, a kind of a window pane in a studio at the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, we can see, it, see through it and we can see a faint reflection of our face. And that means that most of the light is transmitted, but some of it is reflected. Now, how the hell do you explain that if light is a stream of identical bullets? Either they should all be reflected or they should all be transmitted because they're all the same. The only way you can possibly explain it is to say that each individual photon has a certain chance, a certain probability of being transmitted and a certain probability of being reflected. But the minute you do that, you, you, you undermine all physics that happened before. And this is why Einstein, who is the first person to, um, you know, realise that light travelled as photons, realised that this was absolutely catastrophic. And he famously said, God does not play dice with the universe, you know. So this is, uh, I'm interested, and I'll, I'll ask you, Ginny, first of all, which is when you are, uh, well, first of all, what do you think are the limitations of what can be explained? When you're given, I mean, you know, for instance, when you're writing a blog, which is going to be, you know, about 800 to 1,000 <laughs> words maybe on an idea, you have to deliver a certain amount of information within that, and you have to try and make sure, because this is one of the big problems, I think, with journalism and science in terms of pop culture, where very often everything has to be made so shiny that beneath that allure there is no real information. So how do you try and get that balance? I think one of the important things is communicating that science isn't definite most of the time, That particularly with the things that I talk about, the sort of neuroscience and psychology and health and those kind of areas. A lot of the time there's evidence for something and then there's some other evidence that might say something else. And I think if you just present science as press releases, it can lead to a really confusing and misleading uh, picture and it can lead to people sort of saying oh you scientists you're always changing your mind all the time because they read this drug's going to cure Alzheimer's and then this drug's going to cure Alzheimer's and this drug's going to cure Alzheimer's and actually what we need is a bit more kind of journalism that's stepping back and looking at the bigger picture but finding a place to do that and funding for that kind of thing is is I think a lot harder. So should science journalism should we really if it, if it, it can be effective should it be something that is leading you to then go and do your own work? That the actual the idea of being able to see a quarter page, a half page on a printed newspaper, or you know, in terms of the internet, uh, that really you're not going to be able to give you 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 have to inspire people to go. All oh, right, hang on, I need to go a bit further because the idea of summing it up in such short <laughs> space of time. Yeah, I think I think whenever you're kind of constrained by a number of words, there's a balance of how correct you are and how sure you can sound. So you can say something that's definitely right, but it usually has lots of probabilities and maybes and that kind of mm. thing in it. But I think it is important to kind of let people know that not everything can be taken at face value, even in science, and that there is debate among scientists and there are lots of things, particularly in psychology and neuroscience, that we don't know yet. Um, but that in itself is interesting. So things shouldn't have to be tied up in a pretty bow and this is definitely a fact in order to interest people. I think the kind of disagreements and the, well, there's this theory and that has some support, but then there's this theory. I think that's just as interesting, if not more so. When we're, de when we're describing or trying to uh, communicate something complex, we're, we're looking for metaphors. And, and of course, the, the metaphor for, for physics is mathematics. It's an absolute, <laughs> for, for some reason, we completely don't understand. It's a completely perfect metaphor for physics we've got no idea why so we're looking constantly for metaphors which are a bit cruder but not not so crude that we don't transmit any information i think einstein said something didn't he you know we can make things simple but not 
too simple. Mm. So, I mean, and, and I didn't, I just realised I didn't answer your question, Robin. Uh, the, 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 really, I'm just trying to understand things myself. And, and I, I, I'm not thinking of, of any audience. And it's just a piece of good fortune that other people, when I'm trying to figure it out myself, also learn something. Well, that's that lovely you mentioned, Feynman, the great story about when he was doing a series of lectures. And I can't remember what the subject was. They said, you know, Richard, can you write an hour-long lecture on, on this particular idea in science? And he spent weeks and weeks and weeks trying to get it into an hour and eventually said, what I've realised is we don't really understand this idea. Absolutely. Because if I'm not able to place this in an hour-long lecture, it turns out there are too many mm-hmm. maybes, possibilities, and frankly, we haven't done the experiments yet. And I think yes. that's... a but interestingly, I don't, I don't want to be big-headed or anything, there was something he said which was um, that we don't understand the parallel exclusion principle. And everything that I know about, about communicating science is that there's always a way, you know. And so in, in if we need to talk about Kelvin, I, I, I think I did explain the parallel exclusion principle. Uh, so we mustn't be put off by people, mm. geniuses like, like, like him, um, because I, there's always a way to communicate anything to anyone you know but but yeah that's a good sign for a scientist if they can't really explain it it means that they don't really understand it i think the other thing is kind of working out when the details are important for understanding the concept and when they're irrelevant and you're better leaving them out kind of if you're trying to get someone to grasp a a big a big concept sometimes particularly in if you're doing sort of molecular biology stuff you can get very bogged down in the names of things and the details of things and you have to think does putting in this extra fact okay it may make it more correct but does it actually change anyone's understanding what they're going to take away from it and if not sometimes Mm. it can be better to kind of leave some of those details out it's kind of like looking at something through frosted glass isn't Mm. it like a frosted bathroom window you know i mean there's obviously the the really sharp picture which the (laughs) the working theoretical physicist can see but what you want is something which is cruder but is still correct you know but you know it's that kind of kind of image isn't it really um it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing because it becomes instinct, really. And obviously, if no one reads your book <laughs> and you never get commissioned to write another book, you realise that you've done it incorrectly. Well, that pictures thing, where because again, Feynman, would, mm. you know, a lot of people feel that there was. I think some people felt that he may, might have even had synesthesia. There was something about the way that that, that shapes and colours were translated, and and numbers, etc. That you know, and there's all those legendary stories of him kind of walking past a blackboard where people have been staring at it for ten years and going, "Ah, you want to do that, that?" And they go, "Oh, bloody hell, Feynman's done it again." You know, <laughs> I know they're kind of you know part of the myth, but. Um, that bit of placing pictures in people's minds, yeah. you know, without without going down too far in, in... I haven't got that far through Wittgenstein's work, to be quite honest, so I would be something of a sued should I talk too much about that particular picture theory. But that, you know, when you're writing, when you're writing, mm-hmm. I, I, there is... Illustrate and, and yet physics, I do find one of the... When I ask physicists sometimes, what's in their head? What do they see? Is there a thing they see? When and, and it's fascinating how, of, how often they go, no, it is, for some of them, it is just the numbers and the Absolutely equations. Absolutely right. I mean, that's the incredible thing about Richard Feynman because, you know, there, there was a, a man called Julian Schwinger who shared the Nobel Prize with him uh, for um, 
quantum electrodynamics, and Schwinger was famous for covering blackboard after blackboard with the most dense equations, and he definitely did think entirely mathematically. And Paul Dirac, the greatest physicist since Newton, English physicist, was very similar. He plucked the Dirac equation for which describes an electron out of thin air because he was looking for something mathematically consistent, and he played around with equations. But Feynman did not think that way at all. Feynman was incredibly visual, and as you remember from his from his uh, book, what was it called? Uh, Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. He was very interested in the, the speed at which uh, um, uh, a pattern on a plate rotated around a plate when it was spinning on a, on a table at Los Alamos. And then that later became crucial to his theory of the electron for which he got the uh, Nobel Prize. And you know, he was a very visual physicist. So it's interesting the way that, that physicists work in different ways. And when I, when I was lectured by, by, by Feynman, I remember him saying in a lecture, you can know more than you can ever prove. I've never seen that quoted anywhere, but he said that. And I think that's, you know, he had this kind of sense of, of what was correct. And mathematicians do. They, they conjecture things. And it takes, like, well, you know, like, like the Poincaré conjecture and all these kind of Fermat's theorem and everything like that. And it takes, like, centuries for somebody to actually prove it. So they get some kind of sense. And Feynman definitely had that sense of the way things could be, you know, the universe was put together before he could prove anything. I love that. I think it's is it Heim Weisberg. I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who who travelled across the Atlantic with Albert Einstein, and uh, he said every single morning Einstein and him would be on the deck, and Einstein would explain uh, the uh, theory of general relativity to him. And at the end of the journey, he said, "I have to admit, at the end of that journey, I came to the indubitable conclusion that undoubtedly Albert Einstein believed he knew what he was talking about." <laughs> yeah, and, and that's part of it, isn't it? I think with science, that, that mm. for a lot of us someone like me who has no science background at all, there is a point where I'm going to have to trust. And I know with climate change, that you have all of these kind of uh, very heavy inverted commas around the climate change scale who go, oh, you can't just take it on trust. And you go, well, unfortunately, we live in a world which mm. is so complex that you have, I think, anyway, you have to eventually whittle down on certain areas who you've decided you can trust because you don't have the time to do the experiments. You don't have the time to go to the Arctic and take various... <laughs> to, you have to... And, and I think I've got better at understanding. I can watch someone mm. and go, hang on a minute kind of the way they've explained that ended up being both convoluted and contradicting themselves i'm not sure i can and then other people i sit and i go no i'm pretty there's a way of reading someone and i know that then ends up almost sounding worryingly pseudoscientific but maybe perhaps but i i think that's one of the problems we have you know the, again the feynman thing about the boundaries of our ignorance you know mm. increase every single day well, I was yesterday. I was I was at University College, and I was talking to John Butterworth, who's a particle physicist. I'm sure you know. And I was trying to trying to get my head around electroweak unification and what Peter Higgs did to get the Nobel Prize. And you're absolutely right. There's a point where I can't appreciate the details of quantum field theory <laughs> that led to his prize. You know, so I have to accept what John Butterworth told me. And I think with all, all of us, there's a you know there's a point at which unless you're an actual specialist in the field, you you, you have to accept things that you're told. Well, this critical thinking, Harry Croto, that they've been putting that quote. One of the last, I, I, how long ago did he? I can't remember how long ago, but he, he, I think there is a quote where he said, you know, one of the most important things to teach children now is critical thinking, is to work out why you trust who you trust, how you can believe that the way they've accrued the evidence is. A better way than the other person, you know that bit. It's very I hate to be controversial, but Brexit seems to see, seems to show that we're we're not succeeding. 
Well, no, no, it's not controversial. I, I, I think we're seeing this both in the UK and the US, and I think in Australia. I think there is a, a, a huge problem where, you know, this is the, I've mentioned this before. There's a brilliant book which I, I loved by Lawrence Scott called uh, "Picnic, Comma Lightning," which is one of my favourite titles of any book this year. It's it's the uh, we need to talk about Kelvin of its generation, which you, you, you know is my favourite title of that year. Uh, but um, he talks about the fact that it, the book's about storytelling, and he talks about the fact that. People now say it's not about the fact, it's about winning the narrative. And if you've won mm. the narrative, and that this to me is a major issue for science, which is, and all evidence-based thinking, that to write the good story, first of all, requires... a Now, the, the charlatans and the financiers and the hedge fund managers and the chaos capitalists and all those other people and the dogmatic nationalists, they don't really give a fuck about the facts. They just want to go, this is the story. And by the time you've then built the facts up and you go, actually, they were wrong. Oh, the front pages have moved on now. It was a week ago. This seems to be an incredible battle we're dealing with. Part of it is a problem with how our brain works, that our brain likes to find things that fit in with things we already know. So once you start building a scaffold of knowledge, you will pay attention to things that fit into that scaffold and ignore things that don't. Um, and you'll also require a much higher level of evidence for things that don't than things that do. So you've probably experienced this. If you're reading something and you, and you read a headline and you go, oh, OK, yeah, that sounds about right, you probably don't then interrogate who the writer is and go and look at the papers and the sources and stuff. If you read a head heading that kind of makes you think, hmm, that sounds a bit pseudoscience-y, then you start looking into the person and finding kind of issues and why they might have read, written that. And I know I've done the same thing. Like, if I am researching a topic and I find something, I think, oh, yeah, that's pretty much what I remember from a lecture that I went to a few years ago, then I don't spend as long checking that it's definitely right because I think, well, it fits in with what I already know. So if you end up with a society whose knowledge base is not built on facts, then it's going to be really hard to correct that later because the brain does not like changing its viewpoint. It's a really difficult thing to do. And ultimately, it's about energy, surely, because, the, you know, <laughs> your personality and everything you know is in the connections between neurons and you've got, to, you've got to reinforce some of those connections or you've got to prune some of those connections and that takes a lot of energy. So it takes a lot of energy to change your opinion, really. I just use trepanning. Chop it out, Marcus. I have. The, I'm not going to pretend because I haven't yet read your new book. And yeah. so, uh, can you tell me a little bit about what the the, the, the latest uh, your latest work? Well, basically, it's called Infinity in the Palm of Your Hand, and it's really fifty bonkers things about the universe. I wrote a book. Uh, a few years ago called What a Wonderful World, which was about everything. Obviously, you can't write about everything, but it was about everything from uh, finance to thermodynamics, you know, sex to special relativity. And when you come to give a talk, a public talk about your book, obviously, you don't have the time to expand on an entire chapter on quantum theory. So like Robin, who has to, has to you know, get jokes that, 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 that grab people's attention, I, I look for things that would grab people's attention, you know. So I would start, I would start off something on quantum theory by saying, you know, you could fit the entire human race in the volume of a sugar cube. And, of course, the explanation for that is... It, well, I, I, I can go into that, but it's about there's a lot of empty space and quantum theory has got something to do with it. And, and, and I would say... Uh, Robin will know these things, you know. Um, um, if, you, if, you, if the, the sun were made of bananas, it wouldn't make any difference, you know. So I'm looking for, the, for, the, for the, almost the, the, the tweet kind mm. of uh, fact that will grab people's attention and then I can 
tell them about tell them the interesting uh, physics or science behind it. So that's that, that's that's really what I did in the book. I mean, what actually happened was last year I thought, oh, I'm short of money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote to all these news. Well, I contacted the Sunday Times and the Observer, and I said, "Why don't I do a, co- a column about bonkers things in, about the universe?" And they all said, "Oh, that's an interesting idea, but we haven't got any money." And then I thought, "Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll ask a publisher," and the publisher said, "Yeah, we'll do it." So that's what I've I've, I've done really. We're well, saying that there's no money. That's that's a sad thing about you know the reason that we've started to well we've always had quite a lot of science on cosmic shambles, but trying to fill in the space left by. The Guardian Science blog's ending. I think at the worst possible time, a time where you were, you know, evidence-based mm-hmm. thinking of trying to make mm-hmm. sure that you know pseudoscience and charlatanism and you know all those different forms of that, you know, pseudo-economists. All of you know, this is an interesting thing actually about the skeptic world. I think now is that it's taken a while, but having recently been up at QEDCon in in Manchester, where uh, the Merseyside skeptics from that, I think more and more they've realised. Hang on a minute. It, yeah, it, it, a few years ago, you go, ah, poltergeist and UFOs, Bigfoot. And then you go, hang on, oh, okay, anti-vaccination. And now mm-hmm. it's like, it's every, you know, pseudo-evidence yeah. is, it, it's an incredible battle. But I think, you know, the, pro- the problem is that people are not swayed, as you just said, as Ginny just said, by, by evidence. They're, they're swayed by emotion. And people like Nigel Farage go straight to the, to the you know, the emo- you're, you're, you're being overrun, you know, you're, you're going to be by, by brown people, you know. Um, so I think that maybe we, we need to, to take a leaf out of his book. I mean, and you'd be the best person, Robin, because when you get an emotional response when you use comedy. Mm. And you can say something... So, once people laugh with you, they've taken on board what you're saying. Uh, I seem to remember... Um, wasn't there, um, um, I think there was a hurricane that uh, hit Haiti a few years ago. Mm. And it, I don't know, it, it killed... It made hundreds of thousands homeless, killed thousands. And there was there was a storm in New York that I think killed 13 people. And there was a lot of talk at the time of press press freedom. And now you could say, oh, God, isn't it terrible? You know, they ignored that... The, media, the world's media ignored that story about Haiti. And, and they, 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 but they cared about New York. But someone just said, um, avoid press in, intrusion, move to Haiti. And I just thought, God, you know, they said exactly the same thing yeah. in a way that perhaps, you know, amused. I saw this as a tweet and it was massively retweeted. And so they've actually made people kind of, it's kind of black comedy. They've made people laugh and, and they've made the same point. So I, I wonder if we need to be a bit more creative because we're not going to persuade people by evidence. We're not going to persuade them by, by giving them graphs. But if we can say something that makes them laugh and also lodges the point, then, then, then that's how you do it. I think the other thing is just familiarity. Um, and this is something that's happened as kind of social media has exploded, that the more often you hear something, the more likely you are to believe it's true. Mm. Um, and there's even some evidence that debunking things can cement them in people's minds because people don't yeah. remember mm. the debunking. They just remember, oh, I heard that thing about left brain, right brain again. That must definitely be true because now I've heard it more times. Um, so I guess it's about getting more scientists on Twitter, getting people following more scientists on Twitter so that we can compete. I mean, one of the kind of areas that I I see a lot of it is the kind of nutrition side of things, that there is so much rubbish on social media, particularly Instagram. And like the number of times you see posts about, I don't know, Himalayan pink salt being non-GMO and therefore really good for you. It's it's salt. How the hell is that going to be GMO in the first? Anyway, but you just you see these things over and over again. And if you hear it a lot of times, 
when you see pink Himalayan salt, you're going to think, oh, I've got positive associations with that. So I think we have to be as kind of on it as the charlatans are to kind of... You have to be more than on it. You have to, I think, fight ten times as hard because you've said this. I mean, it's interesting what you say about humour because in one way, I mean, some of the stuff that I've written about in the the book that I've just done about mental health, it's been very interesting to get the reaction because when I stand on stage and do sometimes jokes or sometimes about loss and death and that kind of thing, you you do, you're right. And then there's the other dangerous side. You know, there's there's a comic who's written a book recently about neuroscience, which I felt was filled with both misinformation and disinformation to a terrible level. And I have people coming up and saying, oh, I've read that guy's book and uh, oh, I like what you do as well. You both do this comedy science thing. And I have to and I feel bad about it, but I have mm. to do a bit where I go, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but please mm. do check on nearly all the information he, he placed mm. in the book because he's written a book about neuroscience without really interviewing a neuroscientist. Without actually, And the bit where he talks about how rubbish neuroscientific experiments are and fMRIs is actually him imagining what it would be like. So it's right. He's quite. He's right. The experiment was terrible, but it was him who imagined it in the first place. You know. So there's. A, so that's the other thing. Is yeah, it's both sides. But you're right. Working out all the ways of. And yeah. I, I think that science is, is getting punch people, because uh, I, I went to an event <laughs> at the Science Museum a, a couple of days ago, and it was a book launch, and they had um, one of the Apollo astronauts who was on a video link. Um, I'll remember his name in a minute. And, but I do remember that, that, that it didn't one of the Apollo astronauts punch someone? Who Clarence has, Aldrin, yes, I think, was who he's said, best known. He's we, we didn't go to the moon. The we didn't go to the moon. And, I mean, they must be so fed up. I've been pursued down streets by people saying we didn't go to the moon. Uh, and I don't really know how you, how you, what you do about that. I mean, you turn around and go, but this is the moon. I've already heard... <laughs> That science journalists have been have been asked by I don't know by 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 radio programs already to come on because it's the 50th anniversary of the moon landings next year already to to discuss with someone who doesn't believe it. Oh, now there comes a point and, and they refused they 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 refused because there comes a point when it's factual and yeah. this isn't really a matter of opinion it isn't really a matter of d- a debate. Like, for instance, I mean, Nigel Lawson. I mean, the BBC has apparently apologised for, for having Nigel Lawson on uh, the Today programme. Based, I think he said something like uh, the last 10 years have been the coolest years or something ridiculous. And, um, and he was not challenged, you know. Um, so, so hopefully we won't be seeing too many people uh, in debates on, on television and radio no, next they year. Because it, it trends. It trends on Twitter. There's a who t- I don't know who tweeted. But I thought it was a very simple way of saying it. said, uh, journalists, if someone says it's raining, you don't immediately have to have someone else on who says it's not exactly. raining. Your job is to look out of the window mm-hmm. and work out if it is or it isn't. That is so frustrating because I hate to criticise the BBC because I think we really need the BBC. It's incredibly important for our democracy. But very often you get an item and at the end it just says, but the government said the opposite or the government says it's given five billion. And I think this is a factual thing that somebody could check, you know. Mm-hmm. They've said they're going to give five billion. Is that real money? Over what period of time? You know, um, I just think sometimes that that is a, a, not a good way to do journalism. I mean, the kind of things that I see, I worked in a backwater of journalism at New Scientist. They would never have been allowed. Mm. You know, some of the things that I see which are routine now in our media. Anyway. No, I think you're right. I think there is a... Uh, um... Ginny, have you got a book out, by the way? Because I should always check. Not recently. 
So, for those who are catching up for Christmas. <laughs> so I've, I've co-written three DK books. So we did How the Body Works, How Food Works, and then we did How Science Works, which isn't actually how science works, that we've just picked some bits of science and explained them. But they're beautiful, highly illustrated. The illustrators I work with are incredible. I send them these terrible little stick figures with arrows on and they turn them into pretty, pretty things. Um, so, yeah, they're available. And very nice Christmas presents. Have you got something? I mean, what would you most like to, you know, neuroscience, psychology, these are, I mean, it's not like these are not exciting times in all branches of science, but it seems like we had a hundred years where we're going, ah, now we're dealing with the mind. Oh, we really screwed that bit up, didn't we? Oh, now we're dealing with the mind. Oh, you shouldn't stick a nail up there. That was a bad idea. Now, oh, stop dressing up as clowns and screaming at babies. You know what, there's an interest. And now, you, I, I don't know, I personally feel that in the last 20 years, with the mixture of technology mm. and that the philosophy, psychology and neuroscience, the science that suddenly, like, you know, Sarah Jane Blakemore was mm. in, incredible work and Uta Frith and Chris Frith and those people, you know, that, that we're getting to a very interesting place in that. Yeah, I think it is really interesting. I think the the kind of breaking down of the brain into small components has been a really big focus. And now we're kind of realising that actually, okay, that's great. You can work out how individual cells work. You can maybe say this region does this and this region does that. But what we need to look at is the brain as a whole and how it connects and kind of networks rather than the region for X and the region for Y and and the kind of the ways different parts of it interact. And as you say, technology has been a huge driver of that. The way that we kind of suddenly had this ability to look inside the brain an actual brain that's doing things with the discovery of fMRI was amazing but it hasn't been without its kind of downsides in that everyone got very obsessed with finding the region for x um, and then as kind of resolution got better and technologies got better they kind of went oh maybe it's actually a little bit more complicated than that um, and I think that's the kind of the next step working out people talk about the connectome um, sort of how brains connect but it's really difficult because everyone's brain is so different um, that even if we manage to, you know, the human brain project where they're looking at kind of trying to map every neuron in a human brain and they've done it for a fly brain and I think they're working on it or maybe they've done it now for a mouse brain and then they want to scale it up for a human brain. But the problem is, OK, then you've mapped a brain. That doesn't mean you've mapped the brain. Um, so I think we're going to need lots of kind of big data and all of those kind of Oh, I'm disappointed. Things I think you're going to, to go, to... I think we're going to need lots of brains. Well, lots of brains, brains. as well. We definitely need lots of brains. But maybe also some mathematicians to help oh, us with the Oh, we also going, by the way, with brain the, who, the new brain who's entered the fourth brain of the day uh, is Matt Parker. Well, Matt. I heard we were trying to understand the brain from a ground-up uh, reductionist point of view, so I thought so I'd get, get involved in, in that. Matt, would you like to get your hacksaw, <laughs> Ginny? And... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say brains take a lot of energy, so most most organisms don't have them, do they? And I, I'm I'm very I'm I'm very concerned about juvenile sea squirts because I, I don't know if you remember it. In, is it Daniel Dennett who said the juvenile sea squirt squirt floats through, wanders through the sea looking for a rock to clamp on, and when it when it finds one, it clamps on it. It doesn't need its brain anymore, so it eats it. Mm. And now when I when I've mentioned this in talks, people get very worried because they say, what happens if the juvenile sea squirt gets dislodged? Does it regrow its brain? In order to know, so I'm going to ask you that. I am not an expert on juvenile sea squirts. <laughs> Apologies for that. Um, yeah, I don't know. There are lots of really interesting, you know, different kinds of brains. I mean, if you look at like a bird brain, they're just built 
completely differently to human brains. So um, Professor Nikki Clayton, who's one of my kind of heroes in this region, describes it as um, a bird brain is like a fruitcake. So it's got these little kind of lumps, whereas um, a mammal brain is like a layered cake. So you've got oh, these kind careful of different with cake layers doing different things. Because you used things. to have those in physics, um, didn't you, for atomic <laughs> structure? Oh. So we, we, you know, we look at um, bird brains Plum and kind of what they can right. do. Yeah, that kind of thing. But we kind of we try and compare animal intelligence to human intelligence. Mm. But their brains are just completely different. So okay, they might be able to do something that we can do, but does that make them more intelligent or less intelligent? And it's yeah, it's just so completely different. What is intelligence? Exactly. Matt, what are you working on at the moment? Apart from about to do some retakes for your book. I've just finished writing a book, which I hear we're all plugging our favourite books we've just written. So, yeah, um, Humble Pie will be out in March 2019. But I actually, because I had put, foolishly put a bit in about how the brain, human brain, processes and understands numbers and mathematics. And so I had to go and sit down with cognitive scientists and go through what's what we understand innately what we learn Ooh. and which part because we do we emerge like an infant has understands number and can do basic or at yeah. least recognize basic arithmetic which is phenomenal and comes with some elements of understanding space yeah. but whether or not that which age i was speaking to someone um molly dillon who's a researcher at nyu about when humans can read a map and what we're born with in terms of understanding space and when we can then um, use it. And then how this is repurposed to do language and everything else. I mean, what amazes me is we evolved on an African plane, you know, three million years ago. Our brain is, you know, three pounds of jelly and water. Uh, it, it, was, it was designed or, or, or evolved for us to, to see predators, uh, you know, I don't know, a few hundred metres, a kilometre away or whatever, and yet we can do abstract mathematics and well, yeah. you're a mathematician. And the, the, Some well, of us can some do abstract mathematics. Matt Parker can do abstract mathematics. It depends on how much effort you put in. But the thing is, we, so we have a sense of number, but it's logarithmic, which is what we needed for survival. And if people haven't been in formal education or are very young, and you get them to place three between, like, one and nine, it'll... Put, people will put three in the middle because we one, two, we go three, multiples. Yeah. yeah, three is three times bigger than one, and nine is three times bigger than three. So of course three goes in the middle, and that's what we that's what we emerge with. But then through formal education, we learn no, you know, mm. no, the number line is linear, and that that's then an acquired skill or intuition that builds on what we're born with. What about these kind of you know you, you do hear of mathematical prodigies who can do? I mean, Einstein was was very good even at the age of five. You know, so I mean, where does that come from? I have no idea. Mm. This is a bit like, yeah, with Alan Moore, when we talked to when we were talking about where do ideas come from, and eventually I said to Alan, I said, if we work that out, we'd know the secret of consciousness, and Alan would then have a Nobel Prize, which he deserves. <laughs> uh, thank you for Matt's just only popped in right at the end to do his, his recording. We've run out of time already. Uh, Matt's book is out in March. Uh, Marcus's book, Marcus's many books, but the latest book is out right now, isn't it? As far as I know. Yeah, it's published by Michael Amara. It's called Infinity in the Palm of Your Hand, and it's out now. And Ginny's go to uh, DK website where you will find uh, mine uh, I'm joking tell you is also out now uh, and uh, also go to the Cosmic Shambles website where as well as finding short films about many different scientific ideas there's documentaries there uh, and there are also blog posts by everyone who is sat in this room and many other people as well so uh, if you do get a chance if you can support us via Patreon that means that we can just keep going in terms of creating as many blog posts as possible about as many scientific ideas and other ideas as well sometimes just about the band 
and Queen, which it turns <laughs> out has been created the most consternation and fury was uh, Michael Legg's blog about Queen has created more problems than those who believe the moon landing is a hoax. There we go. Human minds. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, good. The band busy as ever. What's, what's the band Queen? Yeah, what? Well, just the band. Just the Queen. And we should also mention, since we recorded this, You Can't Polish a Nerd, the uh, latest show from Festival of the Spoken Nerd, which is Matt Parker with uh, Steve Mould and Helen Arney. That is available now on DVD and download iTunes uh, and floppy disk as well, because, you know, why not? Uh, so that's out now. And uh, if you go to their website, festivalthespokennerd.com, F-O-T-S-N.com also works, and use the promo code COSMICPI, that's COSMIC P-I, all capital letters, you'll get pie pounds off any physical purchase from the You Can't Polish a Nerd range, so the DVD shirts and all that sort of stuff. So pie pounds off, £3.14 off anything in their store there. Thanks very much for listening. Check out CosmicShambles.com. Support us at Patreon.com slash BookShambles, and we will see you next time. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.